All right, uh, before we jump in, I wanted to say thank you uh, to all of our campuses um, for your generosity towards God's work at Christ Community this past year. Just last month in December, we were able to make up a significant amount of our budget shortfall, which enables us to, as a church, to continue to move forward in all that, that God wants us to do here. Um, also, many of you contributed to the flood relief offering in the fall. Um, and I just want to let you know, just kind of an update, some of those funds have already been gone to help families in our church impacted by the flood. Um, one family we helped had just moved here from Peru. They have since come to Christ. They're now sharing Christ with several other families um, from Peru, which is very, very cool. Also, your generosity um, enabled us to help a church in Colorado Springs that had in our denomination that had major flood damage. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for your amazing generosity. God is good. And so, I just wanted to acknowledge that. Hey, we are in the midst of a teaching series um, on the book of Genesis. So if you have your Bible or your iPad or, or whatever, please turn to Genesis chapter 38. Um, just to warn you, that this, this chapter is without a doubt one of the, the stranger chapters in the entire Bible. It's kind of sleazy, and it feels uh, uh, like a tangent from the Joseph story. And on the surface, at least, it seems to have very little relevance for our lives today. Honestly, it's a passage that many pastors just skip because it's hard to know what to do with. Um, in fact, I was reading a commentary on Genesis where in each chapter the, the scholar offers preaching suggestions. Um, and at the end of this particular chapter, he wrote, I kid you not, he wrote, this chapter is entirely unsuitable for preaching. Um, so uh, that's what he said. Now, while a lot of people may avoid this, this you know, chapter, we're going for it, okay? So uh, we're going after it. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm of the conviction that um, it's here for a reason. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, we read, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. All Scripture is God-breathed. It's from God, and it's useful to help us grow. Now, some passages are a bit more challenging to discover that. But the Spirit of God can help us. And so I've been praying a lot this week for help. So uh, let's look at Genesis 38. Um, whenever we look at a passage of Scripture... There are two questions that we can ask that can help us learn from that particular passage. First question is this, what does this passage teach me about God? What does this passage teach me about God? The main point of the Bible is to reveal to us who God is and, and what he's doing. So that's the first question. The second question we can ask whenever we're approaching a text is this, what does this passage teach me about me? What does this teach me about me? The Bible speaks honestly to us about our human condition. Both of those questions are especially helpful when, it, when approaching any passage of Scripture, and they, they're, they're especially helpful for us when we approach Genesis 38. Even though this chapter is filled with some weird stuff and even some potentially unsettling stuff, it does communicate some very important things about God and about ourselves. In this passage, there are four critical themes that arise, four truths that we desperately need to embrace. And so let's discover what these truths are as we wade into this chapter. Just to set the context, in the last chapter, we saw how Jacob has a number of sons, and one of them named Joseph is the favored one. Dad lavishes special gifts on Joseph, which causes the other brothers to hate him. 
plus he has these dreams that are highly offensive to them. And so the brothers end up selling Joseph into slavery. But then they tell their dad that Joseph was killed. Now Judah is the ringleader of this band of dysfunctional brothers. Um, So Genesis 38, verse 1. Here's where the story picks up. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son who was named Er. She conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. <clears throat> Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight. So the Lord put him to death also. I told you, there's some strange stuff here. So, uh, so Judah leaves his family and he moves in with a Canaanite friend named Hira. And this guy is bad news, okay? We're going to see that anytime Judah is with this guy, trouble happens, okay? We all know friend, friends like that, right? Trouble happens. And it's just a reminder to us of how important it is to choose our friends wisely. 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Are, are there friendships we have that are leading us down paths that are not helpful or wise? Okay, so Judah falls in love with a Canaanite woman, which was not God's plan for his people. He didn't want them blending in with the culture, but Judah does so, okay? He marries this woman, and they have three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah. When when Er was old enough, Judah got him a wife. Her name was Tamar, but we read that Er was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so God put him to death. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Judah then approaches his second son, Onan, and says, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Now, what is this about? In that culture, there was a, a custom known as levirate marriage. And here's the way it worked. When a husband died and he and his wife had no son, it was the responsibility of the next brother to take her as his wife. It was a way to protect her from becoming destitute, having no children. That's what would happen to widows. They would have no family, no children to take care of them. So they would become destitute. And that's what this law was about. But in this case, Judah doesn't command Onan to marry Tamar. He just wants to make sure he has a grandson to carry on his lineage. He doesn't care about Tamar's welfare, as we will see. So Onan starts sleeping with Tamar, he, and he enjoys that part, um, but he doesn't want to get her pregnant because then he'll have to divide his inheritance. And so, so they, anytime they have sex, he pulls out early so she won't get pregnant. He, you see, he, he, he's into the sex, just not the responsibility. Boy, doesn't that sound familiar? Um, I mean, this is so our culture, right? We use sex as a way to feel good, about, you know, to feel good, but we, we completely remove it, or we try to remove it from, the old, from its, its ultimate God-given purpose. 
as a sacred act of love in the context of marriage so that children can be born and raised and loved. See, Onan was simply using sex to get what he wanted, all the while refusing any of the responsibility that comes with the act of sexual intercourse. Things like commitment and sacrifice and love, the things that make sex really a cool thing. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, and so God put him to death as well. Okay, so again, this is a really cheery story up to this point, um, but, but there is a truth here that I want us to think about for a moment. This passage reveals to us the seriousness of God's holiness, the seriousness of God's holiness. When we read a passage like this, especially in our culture, it's easy to have one of two responses. We either laugh it off, oh, there's that Old Testament God smiting people again, or we get offended. How could a good God do something like that? See, either way, I think we miss the real point. God is absolutely holy. And he has every right to judge and punish evil. It is not unfair. It is absolutely just. At, at, at its heart, I mean, think about this. At its heart, sin is an act of treason, right? It's an act of cosmic rebellion. God is our creator. He is absolutely holy. So when we choose to sin, we are voluntarily choosing to say no to him. We are violating, willingly violating his righteous standard. And he has every right to judge us for that. This is not an issue of terrorism. Acts of violence unleashed against innocent parties. This is God's right to dispense justice against evil. Part of our problem with a passage like this is that we don't really understand the nature of God's holiness. He, he is absolutely holy and perfect and, and just. There is no ounce of evil or wickedness in him. So when that kind of holy presence meets evil, it is perfectly justified in destroying it. In fact, let, let me say this another way. What's truly shocking in this story is not that Er and Onan were killed by God. What's shocking is that God allows any of us to live. That's what's shocking. Because we are not holy like him. Not even close. We are not holy. We have the capacity to do evil, just like Er and Onan. You know, so, so many people today look at, look at passages like this, and they mock God for his angry and childish behavior. I mean, are we really in a position to do that? We sit on our self-made high horses as if somehow we have the moral high ground to judge a holy God. I mean, folks, this is a very, that's a very, very dangerous place to be, judging a holy God. What it ultimately reveals is that the fact that we sit on our high horses like that, it ultimately reveals that we know nothing of God's holiness. When anyone in Scripture gets a glimpse of God's holiness, what's their first response? 
kill me now, right? I mean, as woe is me, you know, I've seen God. I mean, it, 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 that's the response. When sinful creatures encounter absolute holiness, they know in that moment that they, what they, what they ultimately deserve is death. They know it. They ultimately deserve death. Er and, and, and Onan were judged for their sin, and the truth is they are not the only ones. The Bible says that one day every human will stand before God and be judged. Don't let your cultural sensitivities or what other people are telling you, making fun of the Old Testament or whatever, don't let your cultural sensitivities cause you to miss the seriousness of God's holiness. Now, the second truth that we see in this passage is what I would call the depth of our depravity. We've already seen it in Er and Onan, but it's also very obvious in Judah, who is in the lineage of, of Abraham. Judah chooses to reject his heritage. He fully embraces a Canaanite lifestyle, which we know from archaeology was a very, very filled with violence and evil and idolatry. So when, when Er dies, Judah commands Onan to have sex with Tamar, but he doesn't, he doesn't command her to marry him. He doesn't command him to marry her. Excuse me. He doesn't command Onan to marry her, which was what the Leverate custom of that day required, marriage. He doesn't care about Tamar's welfare. He doesn't, he doesn't even use her name. <laughs> he just wants a boy to continue his, his, in, in, his, in his lineage. So, so we see in Judah already, we see this rebelliousness, this, this independence, this self-centeredness. It's all about him. And it just gets worse. Verse 11 Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household until my son, Shelah, grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Okay, notice here, Judah has no intention of giving Tamar to his third son. He is, he's blaming her for the deaths of his first two sons. There is no way she's getting near his third son. But he tells her, that he plans on doing so. See, he, he is lying to her. He, he doesn't bring her into his own home so he can care for her or whatever. No, he sends her back to his father's house. I don't even really want to see you. Sends her to his father's house to, to, to live out her years in isolation. It is, it is cold-hearted cruelty what's happening here. And he knows it. Which is what we saw last week from Judah, right? He was willing to sell his brother into slavery human trafficking, sell his brother into slavery, and then lie to his dad about it. This is Judah. Verse 12, after a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. Trouble. Okay. Um, now, now, we need to understand something, something here. In that culture, sheep shearing time was like Mardi Gras, okay? It was a weekend in Vegas. Um, I mean, lots of partying and drunkenness and sex. And, and Judah, of course, goes with, with, his, with his old friend, um, Hira, who apparently is helping him get over his grief, right? Verse 13. When, when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had, had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. 
not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll give you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and, and, and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Okay, so when, when Tamar hears that Judah is, is going to shear sheep, she springs into action. She dresses up like a prostitute, hoping to get Judah to sleep with her. Now, we're going to talk more about Tamar in a few minutes, but, but I want to focus here on Judah. We're still kind of focusing on Judah and his behavior. He sees Tamar dressed as a prostitute, but he doesn't know it's her. She's wearing a veil, and so he says, let me sleep with you. The language here in Hebrew is fairly crude. He is not wooing her with his love and tenderness. He just wants sex, he's, and he's willing to do something really stupid to get it. He tells her that he will pay her a goat, but he doesn't have a goat, so she asks for a pledge, and, he, and she asks for a pledge of his seal and cord and, and staff, and, and he gives it to her. This is like giving her your driver's license. I mean, the seal was a way that men in that culture were able to identify themselves. This is a big deal. And so Jacob willingly risks something extremely important to him for a few minutes of self-gratification. Again, does this sound familiar? I mean, how for the promise of sexual pleasure, a few minutes of sexual pleasure, people will risk their marriages, their careers, their political careers, their jobs. I mean, Judah is a picture of us. He's a picture of us. So they have sex. Now, you may be wondering how, he could, how they could do this and he not recognize her. One, remember, he hasn't seen her for a while, perhaps years, because he sent her away until his son grew up, right? He hasn't seen her for years. Um, she's been waiting for her son to grow up. Two, she disguised herself. She was wearing this veil. Um, and three, they didn't have electricity back then. Um, so it was probably dark in their hotel room or whatever, okay? So, so they have sex. Judah then, after that, he sends his friend to, to pay um, her the goat, to find her and pay her the goat. But of course, he can't find her, can't find um, this woman. Uh, okay, so then... Verse 24, about three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. Ah, again, we see Judah demonstrating this wonderful integrity here, right? Um, so it's okay for him to sleep around. And it's okay for him to lie to Tamar about his own son's availability and to basically sentence her to a life of being alone and being destitute. But when he, when he finds out that she is pregnant, now it hits the fan, right? Now he becomes this self-righteous judge and jury, condemning Tamar to be burned at the stake. The hypocrisy here is unbelievable, right? And yet, if we're honest... <laughs> We know we're capable of the very same thing. We do the very same thing. We judge and condemn people for, for their sexual sins, all the while we keep our little porn stash hidden somewhere. 
Um, We justify our own anger and critical attitude, but then we get all offended when our boss does the same thing to us. You know, we get all angry when when someone accidentally cuts us off in traffic, you know, honking our horn and cussing at them. But, But then when we accidentally cut someone off in traffic, we laugh it off and we wonder why the person who honked at us is so hypersensitive. Right? I mean, we do this. This is us. Whether we like it or not, we are often just like Judah. We're just like him. We do our own thing. We thumb our nose at God. We pursue what's best for us and disregard how it impacts anyone else. We open the door for sexual immorality through our thought life or our actions. And then we try to justify why it's no big deal. Everyone does it. Or we condemn other people for their behaviors and conveniently ignore our own sinful stuff. I mean, even though we tend to read this passage and look down on how awful Judah's behavior was, we are often just like him. This passage vividly shows us the depth of our depravity. So we've seen, we've seen God's holiness, the seriousness of God's holiness, the depth of our depravity. Is there any hope for us? Well, let's keep going here because there, there is some, some glimpses of hope here. Uh, what we see next is what I would call the mystery of God's methods. The mystery of God's methods. Well, what are we to do with Tamar in this story? Some scholars call her a hero. Others call her a sleaze. Um, So I'm not sure, I'm really not sure she's either one of those. I'm not sure that either one of those is really accurate. What we do know, we do know that she was not a prostitute. She could have chosen that lifestyle years earlier in response to her situation, but she didn't. Up to this point, she had followed Judah's instructions. She had followed his instructions. She has done what he asked. So why dress up like a prostitute? Now, the reason is clear. If you read the passage later, you can see this theme through the whole thing. The reason is clear in the text. It's the main theme of this whole chapter. Tamar is committed to being a part of Judah's family line. You see, this whole story is about lineage. It's about the lineage of Abraham continuing. We learned in Genesis 12 that God's intent was that through Abraham, um, who was Judah's um, great-grandpa, Through Abraham, a great nation would form, and also that from that lineage, a Messiah would be born. So here we have Tamar, who is so committed to being a part of Judah's family line. She'd already married into it, then her husband died. So she's so committed to being a part of that family line that she risks everything in order to try and make it happen. She knows she could be burned at the stake for this. She knows she could be discovered. But she earnestly wants this family line to continue, which is more than we can say for Judah. I mean, the clear implication in this passage is that God wants the family line to continue as well, and and we're going to see why in a few minutes. So Tamar is not a prostitute. Even when she dresses up like a prostitute, she is not looking for just sex with anyone. She is trying to sleep with Judah. Because she knows that's the only way she can be a part of his family line. Now, I realize this is so strange to our culture. But we need to be very careful about forcing our Western cultural mindset onto passages like this. Because really, Judah, in in a very real sense, Judah forced Tamar to this course of action. 
He was was not going to let his third son sleep with her, as would have been appropriate in that that culture. It would have been appropriate, but he was not going to let that happen. So Tamar shrewdly goes through with her plan, and it works. She gets pregnant, and Judah wants her punished. But then we see how, how smart Tamar really is. Look, verse 25. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. She got him. I mean, she, she nailed him. She nailed Judah. And he knew it. He knew it. He acknowledged, she is more righteous than me, since I wouldn't give to her my son, Shelah. Jewish is, Judah, excuse me, is, is repenting here. He is acknowledging that he is the ultimate cause for all of this, his unwillingness to give his third son to her and take care of her in that way. He didn't keep his word to her. He didn't do the right thing. He's acknowledging it here. Now, I put all of this in the category of mystery, the mystery of God's methods. He uses this Gentile woman, um, Tamar, he uses her shrewdness and courage to open Judah's eyes to see his own sin. Tamar was God's instrument to open Judah's eyes to see his own sin. And what we're going to find out later in the story of Joseph in a few chapters is that by that time, when, when that happens with Joseph and all that, Judah is a different man. And perhaps this was the turning point. He's a different man. He, he, he is in the process of being transformed. He's under construction here. Through all these circumstances, God is still at work. So this mystery of God's methods. But there's, there's another aspect of this mystery that is so incredible. L- look at verse 27. And again, we get to the passage that kind of tells us why this is in here. When the time came for her to give birth, there were two twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand, so the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew his hand, back his hand, his brother came out, and she said, so this is how you've broken out, and he was named Perez. Then his brother, who had the scarlet thread on his wrist, came out, and his name was Zerah. So what is significant about this? I had your hopes up. You were like, oh, cool, we're going to get the meaning. What? What is the big deal here? here? Here's what's so significant. Look with me at Matthew, Matthew 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. This whole episode, with all the deception and sleaziness and weirdness, this whole episode ends up being in the genealogy of our Savior. He was a descendant of Tamar's and Judah's sexual union. Jesus was a descendant of that. How do we put all that together? Here's how. Our God is absolutely incredible. 
He is able to weave our own brokenness into his story and accomplish his purposes. It's amazing. I mean, you ever watch a movie where um, about two-thirds of the way through the movie, you're seeing all these people and situations that are in conflict and a total mess, and you think, there is no way out of this. That there is no way this is going to end well. And, and then you watch the ending, and all these disparate pieces come together, and you think, how did they do that? That was amazing. Well, the reason they can do that is because it's a movie, and, and, and the, director, the director gets to orchestrate every line and every part. So even though we have, we, you know, we have no clue how all these things are going to come together, the director does. The director knows. In a similar way, even though we don't know how all this is going to come together, God does. God does. He is the author of the story. And he can use all sorts of means to get us where he wants us to be. Don't ever think he is no longer working in your life because you messed up here. Don't never think he is no longer working in your life. He is working. But there's a mystery to his methods, which leads to the final thing that, that brings all of these other truths together. We, we've seen the seriousness of God's holiness and the depth of our depravity and the mystery of God's methodology, but we dare not miss the wonder of God's grace. The wonder of God's grace. Here, here is Judah, a complete mess of a man. Um, self-centered, self-righteous, rebellious, sexually immoral, without compassion. I mean, we could easily say that he is a total loser. The Bible doesn't pull any punches on this one. It rarely does. You know, have you ever noticed how the heroes in the story are all messed up, right? I mean, it just, it paints this authentic picture of humanity. And it paints a picture here the same way. Judah is a total mess. Now keep that image in mind. Total mess, okay? Keep that image in mind. As we look at a passage in the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 5, where God is on the throne, and he has in his hand a scroll. It's all sealed up, this scroll, and it represents his purposes being fulfilled. Um, and, but there's no one who is worthy to take the scroll and, un, and open it so that these purposes can happen. God is holy and we're not holy. So no one is able to take the scroll. And so there's this moment where he's got the scroll, but no one can do anything about it. No one can approach the throne. It appears that God's purposes for us won't happen. The scroll can't be opened. So as John is seeing this vision and he realizes what's happening here, he is weeping in despair. Because no one can take the scroll and open it. Then we read these words. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Jesus, our Savior, is called the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is not embarrassed by Judah. Jesus proudly wears this title. Judah, and here's why. Judah was a showcase of his grace. Judah was a showcase of God's grace. This is what grace looks like. 
It is undeserved favor. God's you know, undeserved favor, right, bestowed upon broken people who have made a total mess of their lives. Great grace is truly amazing. You see, if we only focus on God's holiness and our depravity, and that's where a lot of people are, yeah, God's holy, I'm depraved. If we only focus there, what's going to happen is we will spend our lives trying desperately to earn our way to God, right? Through our best efforts, we're going to try to you know, follow the golden rule and be a good person. We're, we're going to try to get there because we know we're not, but we're supposed to be, so we're going to try to get there. That will not work because we are still sinful and God is still holy. There is one thing, only one thing, that actually brings God's holiness and our depravity together, and that's the cross of Christ. On the cross, Jesus bridged the gap between our brokenness and God's holiness. He, and here's how he did it, he took the judgment we deserved. He took upon himself the punishment we deserved so that we could be the recipients of this amazing grace. It's not about our our being deserving of it. And are earning it, are being better people, you know, none of that. We're all a total mess. But he paid the price on the cross so that we could be recipients of this grace. So are, are you and I living in the wonder of this incredible grace? That even though we have failed him and made mistakes and gone our own way and our life's a total mess, he extends to us his grace. He invites us to live in the wonder of that grace rather than living our lives under this cloud of guilt and and shame and fear and condemnation. Jesus invites us to live in the joy of what he purchased on the cross. It's about his work on the cross. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Nothing, absolutely nothing can change his love for you. You know what, this is probably the most offensive, unsettling thing in this whole chapter in Genesis. It's not the sex stuff. This is probably the most, the most offensive and unsettling thing, that God actually loves sinners like you and me and Judah. But he does. Jesus' death on the cross is proof that this grace and love are real. Again, this question, are you and I living in the wonder of God's grace? Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. And yet yet we've heard the truths in our head. We, We want you to move them into our heart where we can respond to you. I want to just kind of guide us into a a little prayer time here of response. But First of all, I want us to take a moment and reflect on the seriousness of God's holiness. Just reflect on this. He is absolutely holy, perfectly justified in punishing evil and rebellion and sin. You are in the presence of a holy God.
And in that place of being in his presence, we become aware of the depths of our depravity. And in many ways, we are just like Judah. Self-centered, sexually impure, self-righteous. How we need a savior. Well, we have one. Jesus died on the cross for us. He took the penalty we deserved. Have you fully received this gift? There may be some of you here, you've never received the gift Jesus offers you. Maybe you've gone to church and tried to be a good person, but all of that will just leave you lost in your sin because you're just trusting in your own effort. What, what, what you need is a savior, one who can rescue you from the judgment you deserve. Jesus is that savior. He died on the cross for you. If you would like to receive his incredible gift of grace, then I invite you to pray a prayer with me. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer. Just pray this with me in the silence of your heart. Dear God, I realize that you are holy and I'm not. And I deserve your judgment because of my sin. I realize that I'm separated from you, but I don't want to be separated from you. I believe that Jesus Christ, your son, died on the cross in my place. He took the penalty I should have paid. And he did it for me. And so I choose right now to place my trust in you alone, Jesus. I bring my whole self, my faults and my fears and my failures and all of that. I'm a total mess. I bring that to you and I place it on your shoulders. And I ask you now to forgive my sin and come live in me through the presence of your spirit, changing me from the inside out. Father, I pray for anyone who prayed that prayer. Help them continue to grow in the grace that is now theirs as beloved sons and daughters of yours. Now, for the rest of us here who have placed our trust in Jesus, are, are you living in the wonder of God's grace? Do you know that your sins are forgiven, that Jesus loves you and his face is towards you? I just want to encourage you in the quiet of your heart right now, open your heart to his grace. He loves you. He is for you. Just open your heart to that grace. This amazing love that's yours. Now the way we know that love is ours is because of Jesus. So in just a few moments, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper as a way to celebrate God's grace. The Lord's Supper is a fresh reminder of the price Jesus paid for us. So when we partake, we have the opportunity to open our hearts afresh to his love. We invite everyone that's placed their trust in Jesus to receive the Lord's Supper. Okay, ushers, if you would come down front here. Um, and just stand up front before you start passing those out. But if you could grab a tray and, and come get up here in position, that would be great. Now, before they're going to hand it out, we wanna, I want to explain something. We have a new setup tonight. Um, 
a way to simplify the process a little bit. So when the tray comes by, you're going you're gonna to see two cups actually stacked on top of each other. And I want, we want you to take both cups. It'll both be in a hole. Just take both of those cups out. One will have the bread and one will have the juice. Genius, right? Okay, so, uh, um, but, so when it comes by, take both of those cups out, then pass it to the next person. And then just hold that and wait. And then we're going to partake together of the bread and the juice. Um, so in a moment, ushers are going to pass that out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray for just a, a second. Then I encourage you, while it's being passed, just reflect upon Jesus' love for you. And then again, we'll partake of the bread and the juice in just a moment. So thank you, Jesus, for your body given for us and your blood shed for us. And in these moments as we're even passing the trays, we, wanna, we want our hearts to be open to your grace. We love you. Thank you, God. Go ahead and pass them out.
Moses, the lion of the tribe of Judah, paid for all of your sin and mine. Jesus gave his body for you and me. So let's eat this bread in remembrance of him. And Jesus, the lion of the tribe, from the line of the tribe of, of the line of the tribe of Judah, shed his blood for us, establishing a new covenant, a new relationship that's based on his work, not us. It's on his work. Your sins are forgiven because of the blood of Jesus. So drink in remembrance of him. Jesus, thank you for being such an awesome Savior. Thank you for your grace. We love you. We praise you. We worship you. In fact, the only appropriate response now is just to praise him for what an awesome Savior he is, right? So let's stand. If at some point you want to sit down, that's totally fine. If you want to come up and kneel, let me mention that we have intercessors available, two to this side and one to this side. They'll be wearing red lanyards. If you have a prayer need, anytime during this singing time, just slip out of your seat. Go to one of these folks. They would love to pray with you. So, Father, we pray for these folks, these intercessors. You would fill them, pray through them. We pray for healing and power and life to be poured out. And, Jesus, we ask right now that you would set our hearts free to worship you, to worship you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for being such an awesome Savior.